0: In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.
1: Good morning, my name's Peter. Please join with me as we read from God's Word. In the Church Bibles, you'll find it on page 1219, James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. is standing at the door brothers and sisters as an example of patience in the face of suffering take the prophets who spoke in the name of the lord as you know we count as blessed those who have persevered you have heard of job's perseverance and have seen what the lord finally brought about the lord is full of compassion and mercy above all my brothers and sisters Do not swear, not by heaven, nor by earth, nor by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Peter. Hey, it's good to be together this morning. I think that has been highlighted already as we celebrate Lydia and what she's going through as we walk with the Gibbons. It's just good to be together in a church family. We're going to dig into this in a second. If you're a note taker though, then in the service sheet, let me just change something. It says, begin with the end in mind, and then we've got four points today, not three. The first is uh, our patience. The second is our speech. The third is our suffering. The fourth is our integrity. You'll pick it up as we go on. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this passage. God, we thank you so much that you are a good and kind God. We thank you, Lord, that we can meet together, that we can stop in our weeks and be reminded that you are a merciful God, a compassionate God, a God that cares about us and loves us. God, we pray this morning that you would encourage those of us who need encouraging, that you would comfort those of us who need comforting, that you would challenge those of us who need challenging. And that you would move in this place this morning. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, uh, I read a book called Seven Habits of Effective People, or something like that. And in this book, uh, the guy talks, has a chapter titled Begin with the End in Mind. And he speaks about this idea that uh, you want to live your life thinking about the finish. Right? I don't know if this is something that signifies you or that's something that you do, that you start the way that you want to end, but he says it's a really good thing to do if you want to achieve big goals or you want to achieve anything really, you begin with the end of mind, end in mind. Now, to back it up, he draws on some research from a psychologist who looked in the, into the psychology of peak performance. So looked at what was going on behind the scenes in the brains of those world-class athletes, those peak performers in the business world, and he drew on research of that uh, from that to show how beginning with the end in mind is something good to do. Anyway, this is what this guy, this psychologist, this conclusion he came to. This is what he said. One of the main things was that almost all of the world-class athletes and other peak performers are visualizers. They see it, they feel it, they experience it, But they do all this before they actually do it. They begin with the end in mind. Now, I was talking to Elizabeth yesterday. She said this was actually true of Kathy Freeman. If you can remember, if you were alive back then, when she won in 2000 in the Olympics, she visualized the trophy in the trophy cabinet before she actually even raced the race. And then, of course... She won and brought home the gold. She began with the end in mind. And so he argues in this book that it's not just something good for world-class athletes or for businessmen and men, men and women, but something for all of us that it's good to begin with the end in mind because of this fact right here. If you know what end you are pursuing, it's going to transform your life. This is his whole argument in this chapter. If you know the end that you are pursuing, it's going to transform your life. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but, but thought about the fact of what is your end? What are you pursuing? Right? You can think about it that way, or you can also think about it from the way, what is your life? What are you living for? Actually, show that you're living for, right? It works both ways. What are you living for? What is your life? Show that you're living for, because if we know what end we're pursuing, it's going to transform our life. Now, if you've thought about this before, I think it's a good thing to think about. If you haven't, let me encourage you to do it. But the question we have today is not just, okay, what end are we pursuing? Are we pursuing being an athlete or a businessman or woman or something like that? But how does this all fit in with the universal end to the story? Because I don't know if you caught it this morning, but James actually shows us what the end is. Right, we saw it in verse seven and eight. We see it actually threaded throughout this whole passage. James shows us explicitly what the end looks like, and he said, says this: He says, "The Lord is coming; Jesus is coming back. Bank on it; it's going to happen. And when He comes back, the earth will shake, chains will break, and everyone know heaven and earth will know that Jesus is back, that the King is back." James says, "This is the end. This is how the story ends." And so then, as we gather this morning, the question for us is, is how does this transform our life? If it's true that if you know the end you're pursuing, it transforms your life, then the question for us is, how does knowing that Jesus is going to return transform our lives? Well, as we dig into this passage, we're going to see four things. If you were listening before, you got those four things. But the first one we find in verse 7 and 8. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. The first way in which God's people are transformed by the fact that Jesus will return is that we are a people of patience. He says, be patient, stand firm, because Jesus will come back. And when Jesus comes back, what he will do is he will restore this broken world. He will restore this broken world. And when he comes back, everyone, everywhere will know that he's back. Right? It's going to be a glorious day where the whole world will see that Jesus is back and that he's king. When he returns, everyone, everywhere will know that he's back. Right? Interestingly enough, actually, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was at this thing where someone actually claimed that they were Jesus. They said, I'm back. Right? I'm here. I didn't know it, but I'm here. <laughs> right? I'm finally back. The issue with that is that only the people in that room knew that he was back. When Jesus returns, everyone everywhere will know that he's back. And everyone everywhere will know that he's king. Whether you lived your life like Billy Graham, living for Jesus, or you lived your life like Stephen Hawking, denying the existence of Jesus, the day is coming where we will all know that he is back and that he is king. This is going to happen. This is how the story ends. And so James says, be patient. Be patient. Stand firm. Now, now what does this patience look like? What does it look like as God's people to be shaped by this? What does it mean for us to be patient? My thinking when it comes to patience is kind of like waiting for the bus or waiting for the doctor where you pull your phone out and you're killing time, right, on your phone. That's patience to me. I'm just Waiting until I can finally get to my destination, that's what it looks like. You know, where we scroll endlessly on our phone, that's patience, right? But that's not the kind of patience that James is talking about here. No, James points us to a farmer and says, be patient like a farmer. Now, I'm a city boy. I grew up in the city, right? I've been here my whole life. I don't know that much about farming, right? I I know that not all cucumbers grow with plastic on the outside, Outside of that, though, I'm not much help. So this morning, I'm not going to give you an agricultural lesson, right? In fact, if you, I've got one lime tree in my backyard, and from day one, that's been struggling, right? We've had limes, we've never, you know, they've always been bad. So no lessons. But this morning, we all know things about farmers, right? And I think the big one is that they need rain. Farmers need rain because crops need rain to need water for, the, for them to grow, and so James points us to the farmers and he says, look at them, see what patience looks like. Now, if the rain comes in the autumn and springtime, what, what do farmers do the rest of the time? Right? They don't identify that farming is a job where it's three months on, three months off, three months on, three months off. Right? Where the, the time off, summer and winter, they're the times that they're going to invest heavily in their online gaming community. And they're going to just sit and work their way up, call of duty, so they can prestige a few times It's just a game if you don't know it. Farmers, my young adults, right? We're with us. The rest of us are like shut up, Ben. But farmers, they're not three months on, three months off, right? They work hard all year round, knowing that the time has come where it will rain, right? And in the Old Testament, we're told that God would deliver on that. That God was actually the one behind the rain. And so, what in the Old Testament? What we would see is as God's people, who were farmers. They would live holding on to the promise that God would deliver. That God would deliver on his promise. That the water would come in the right season. And so the rest of the time they would work hard and they would work diligently. They would continue on knowing that God would deliver on his promise. Now sure there was drought seasons. But James's point here is actually that when we look at the farmers, we get the definition of what it looks like to be patient. They worked hard In season and out of season, they kept going. So James says, knowing that the Lord is coming, knowing that Jesus is going to come back, be patient, keep going, even if it's a dry season. Which if we think about it, to the people that James is writing to here, probably was, right? Some of them we saw from chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, were being oppressed by the rich. James is saying to them, stand firm, be patient, Right? You're in a hard season right now, but the season is coming where Jesus will return. For some of us here this morning, dry season, we feel flat and over it. God is telling us this morning, reminding us, this isn't the end. This season's not the end. Jesus is coming back. And so what we see here in these first couple of verses is the first way that we're transformed, that we're changed by the fact that Jesus is coming back. What's the second Well, this one's a short point, but we see it in verse 9. The second way, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. The first way we're transformed by Jesus' return, we're a people of patience. We're not lazy. We work hard. We work diligently. We live knowing the end. We live with the end in mind. The second way we're transformed is that we're a people who speak well. We don't grumble against one another. We don't speak badly to one another or about one another because we know that the judge is near. Now, we're not going to spend too much time on this this morning. We did that a few weeks ago from James chapter 3. If you want the challenge of James chapter 3, of watching our words, go and read that chapter that talks online. But this morning, James just touches on this once again, and the idea is this. We are accountable for what we say. And God will hold us responsible for what we say and in that space, only I am accountable for what I say. I can't blame anyone else. I can't blame the car that cut me off. I can't blame someone who paid me out first. I can't blame anyone else. I am accountable for what I say, and the judge, Jesus, will hold me accountable for that. Only you are responsible for what you say. You can't blame anyone else for what you say. No circumstances no, you can't blame anyone else. The judge is near, and he will hold us accountable for what we say. And so the second way we're shaped by thinking about and recognizing that Jesus will return soon is that we are people that speak well. We're a people that don't grumble. We speak well of each other. We speak well behind each other's backs. That's the second way we're shaped by Jesus' return. The third way, we see it in verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The third way that we are shaped by Jesus, that we are transformed when we have the end in mind, that Jesus will return, is that we are a people who suffer well. We live knowing that Jesus will come back. And when he does, he's going to restore this broken world. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with suffering. He's going to deal with sickness. He's going to fix the mess. And so we're transformed in our suffering because we're able to live, we're able to persevere with the end in mind. And so James says, look to the prophets and to Job as an example of how people suffered well. So firstly, to the prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament were the people who spoke God's message. If God wanted to say something, he would speak through a prophet, and they would speak the message of God, which meant that being a prophet wasn't a glamorous job. It wasn't a job that everyone, you know, you'd grow up, kids everywhere wanted to be a prophet. It wasn't one of those jobs, right? Because they would have to speak God's message. Whatever God wanted to say, they would have to say it. Which meant while it was always a good message, it wasn't always a nice message to hear. In fact, lots of the time, the message was, if you don't change what you're doing, you're going to face the judgment of God for that. And so naturally, what happens then is being a prophet is a difficult job. The prophets suffered. Right? And when we think about a few of the prophets, we see this. Isaiah, um, by Jewish tradition, we see that he was sawn in two as a martyr. Jeremiah, he suffered. Ezekiel as well. Both of them had the job to speak God's message, and they were both told up front no one would listen to them. Right? Who wants that job? Speak, do something that's going to receive no fruit. No one's going to listen to them. And they suffered because of it. Even Jonah. right Now, Jonah had a few issues. If you read the book of Jonah, we know that. Okay? I think the least of Jonah's issues is that he spent a few nights in a fish. But even Jonah, if we think about him, he had to speak a message to a people he hated. And and not only did he have to speak to them, he got to speak to them this message, return to God. And they did. Prophets suffered. It was part and parcel of the job. They suffered constantly, even to the point of death, some of them. But James points us to the prophets And says, look, we see that they suffered well. They endured. And from this point of view, from this side of their suffering, the church holds them up as faithful. We look back and we say that it was worth it. In fact, James goes a step further and he says, actually, they're blessed. He says they're blessed because they endured, because they persevered. Now, blessing, as we've already seen in the book of James, isn't you get a car. Right? It's not like blessing isn't this Oprah version of blessing where it's you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. That's not what blessing looks like. Throughout James, we see blessing is so much more than that. It's this eternal thing. We get the crown of life. Remember, James said this in chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed are those who persevere under trial because when they've stood the test, they'll receive the crown of life that God will give them. It's the same thing Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Where he said, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessing means something so much bigger than what we get in this earth. In fact, if blessing was simply we get a house and a car and and wealth, in the light of eternity, it's actually kind of lame. What James is speaking about here is that blessing is so much greater than that. And when we look back on the prophets, we see they endured. And because they endured, because they persevered in their suffering for being God's people on board with what God is doing in this world, they suffered, but they endured it. And so we call them blessed. Say that they're blessed. They got the crown of life. And so you can see the first way, right? In our suffering, we're transformed when we have the end in mind because we recognize that there is more going on. We're able to persevere as God's people when we face persecution because we know that our end is not what's here in front of us. But that's not the only way we suffer. Some of us just suffer from being in a broken world, which is why James points us to Job. Job suffered unbelievably. Job, if you know his story, he was living the dream. He had a house, he had family. He had their husbands and wives. He had everything. And overnight, Job lost it all. His kids died. His house burnt down. He lost his wealth. And he got sick. Job literally lost everything except the breath in his lungs, his nagging wife, who told him to curse God and die, and three dodgy friends. And yet James points us to Job, which is powerful. It's powerful that he points us to Job. Because when you read through Job, what we see with Job is that he was always real in his suffering. He wasn't happy about his suffering. He was angered by it, and he wrestled with God in his suffering. We even see in Job that he was rebuked by God. And God said to him, like, where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I put the fish in the sea? Where were you when I put the beasts on the land? Job wrestled with God in his suffering. He was real with God with his suffering. But in his suffering, what we see with Job is that he never gave up. He never gave up. He continued trusting in God. And so Job, and so James says, when we look back on Job, we see what it looks like to persevere in suffering, to keep going in suffering. And from this side of Job, what it shows us that his perseverance was worth it. Now, Job in the book of Job, he does receive his he gets a a new family, new house, new stuff. But what James is saying for us, if we're able to persevere in our suffering, is that there's something so much greater for us. There's not a house for us if we persevere. It's not a car if we persevere. There's something so much greater for us if we persevere, if we can stand firm. It's the crown of life that Jesus gives us. It's eternal life that we receive from the King who's going to return. And so James says, right, this is how we're transformed in our suffering, that we're actually enabled to stand firm and persevere, knowing that Jesus will return to fix this broken world and deal with sin and sickness and suffering and death. We're able to persevere living with the end in mind. This is something that all of us need to hear this this morning, because all of us live in this broken world. We live in a world where we will suffer. For some of us, we're facing that at the moment, where we're suffering for being a Christian. We're suffering isolation and persecution. We've poured our life out for Christ and we're running on empty. Where well, we want to give up. For some of us, our suffering comes not from being a Christian but simply from living in this broken world. For some of us this morning, our suffering is the mental sickness that we face. For some of us this morning, we battle anxiety daily and depression, and the darkness feels like it's overwhelming. For some of us, it's just that relentless pressure, the overwhelming stress. For some of us, we face the pain of losing someone that we love, and we feel alone and isolated. For some of us, we're here today, and we feel the pain of living in a broken world because of our sickness. Where we've faced suffering in the last little while, where our bodies have just given way. And our suffering has come in this form where we can't even remember what it was like to have bodies that didn't ache, or we didn't feel the effects of our sickness. And then for some of us here today, we're suffering through people we love. We feel the pain of others, and not just the pain of others, but the helplessness of not being able to do anything. As we saw before with Joe and Charlie and the Gibbons and their family and friends, not only do you feel the pain of what's happening, but you want to do something to fix it and you just can't. Suffering closes in on us. The darkness covers us. Suffering tells us that it's the end of the story, that there's no way out. But what James is pleading with us this morning is that suffering may not be the end of the story, but actually there's a better ending, an ending that's coming later on when Jesus will return. And when he does, he will fix the darkness. He will fix the sickness. He will fix the suffering. And so James shows us, he encourages us, he pleads with us to live with the end in mind, to persevere in this suffering, knowing that there is a better future hope coming. And what we know about this king who will return is not just that he's going to return and fix the brokenness, but the king who's going to return knows what we're going through. He suffered. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be anxious. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer when losing family and friends. We're told in the Bible he wept when his friend died. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He was whipped and beaten and then killed. He knows what it's like and he will return and he will fix the brokenness of this world. And it's his words that are pleading with us this morning to not give up, to keep running, to not give up in the darkness and to not give way to the darkness, to not let suffering be your end, but to realize there's a greater end coming, an end where Jesus will fix this place. It's his words that are saying don't give up. It's his words that are saying, run the race, keep going, suffer well, persevere, stand firm. And so we can see, can't we, that when we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, it transforms our suffering. It changes us in our suffering where we realize we're living for something greater. So the first way we're transformed is in our patience, where we stand firm knowing that there is a better season coming. The second way we're transformed is in our speech. The third way we're transformed is in our suffering. But at the start, we did say that there was four, and James finishes off this passage with one final way in which we are transformed. And it's actually just quite simple. It's in our integrity. Verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Now, there are a few... Strange things going on here. I think the above all phrase, I'm not really sure why it's there. I don't think what James is saying is that above all, like above suffering and above Jesus' return, you know, just make sure your yes is yes. I mean, maybe it could just be that he's kind of closing off his remarks and finishing off his point. But regardless of that, I think that what is clear in this section is that James values integrity. That he's saying that God's people, when we realize that Jesus is going to return soon and that he is returning, is that we are a people of integrity. He values integrity, maybe even more than we value integrity. So the fourth way in which we're shaped by Jesus' return is that we're people of authenticity. We're people who, when we say yes, we mean yes. People, when we say no, we mean no. Right? When we say yes, we mean yes, even if there's a better option. Even if a better option comes up, we still follow through with our yes. When we say no, we mean no, even if it's hard. We're people of integrity. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. We've seen this before in James, haven't we? Right? He's already said things like, don't just be listeners, be doers. He says, faith without deeds is dead. So it makes sense that he's hitting integrity again. When we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, we mean no. When we say we follow Jesus, we follow Jesus. We say we trust Jesus. We trust Jesus. When we say we value God's word, we value God's word, we back up what we say with our actions. We're a people of integrity. And not just because that's who we are, but because the king that we follow was a person of integrity. When we look at Jesus, he always did what he said he would do. Always, even when it was hard. God told the prophets... That he would enter the world to deal with the broken world. And about 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered into the world in a real time and place in history to do just that. Jesus said that he would deal with sin. And he knew that he couldn't just ignore it. But the dealing with sin meant that he would actually go to the cross and pay the price and die so that he could declare us innocent. He backed up what he said with actions. Jesus said that he would fix the problem of death. When he went to the grave three days later, he showed he was good for his word, and he rose again, and Jesus has said that he's going to return, and he will. Bank on it. He's coming back. He's going to return. And when we see this, we're shaped. We're a people of integrity. So you can see that when we live with the end in mind, there's four ways in which we're shaped. We're patient. We're people who speak well. We're people who suffer well, and we're people of integrity. So the challenge then for us is to make sure that we're actually shaped with the end in mind, that we're shaped by Jesus' return. And that is a massive challenge. It's a massive challenge for us for a few reasons. I mean, firstly, I think it's just difficult in the world that we live in that says all that we've got is right in front of us, right? Like we leave this place this morning and every message that you receive is that what is in front of you is the most important thing. You know, you go to the shops and it tells you, if you can just buy stuff, it's going to give you security and comfort and joy. We jump online and we just think, man, if we can do what those people are doing, then we're going to be happy. We're going to be secure. We go to work this week and we feel the pressure of work and the pressure of wealth and the pressure of our job. And so what happens is we live in a culture that tells us that this world is all that there is. So naturally, we become a people shaped by this world. We become a people shaped by what's in front of us, right? And I think that there's a diagnostic to tell us if this is what's happened to us. Right now, if someone came up with a list of what you value, what would they say? Right, if you think about this, what would they say if someone could come up with a list of things that you value, that you love, that you're passionate about? Or more than that, right, at the end of your life, what are you going to be remembered for? What are people going to say at the end of your life about you? Are they going to say, man, they they were just a person of patience. They worked hard in season and out of season knowing that Jesus would come back. Are they going to say about you, you know what? They just spoke well of people all the time. He never spoke badly about people. She never joined in on the conversations that we had when we talked badly about other people, we just know that they, they were per- people who spoke well. It was a person who spoke well. Are they going to say of us? You know what? They suffered. They went through a lot in their life, but they suffered well. They persevered. They suffered with the end in mind. Are they going to say about us, you knew what you were going to get? When they said yes, they meant yes. What you see is what you got. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's, That's challenging. I don't know if that's the things that are going to come up when that time comes for me. So what do we do in this? Well, I think we don't just work hard on these things. We live with the end in mind. Because when we know what the ending is, it transforms us. It changes us. It pushes us, even in the most difficult moments of our existence. I said this at the end of last year, Um, I was reading a book on a guy who was in the German Nazi concentration camps. Uh, And this guy's name is Viktor Frankl, and he writes a book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, um, man, just reading the uh, things that these people suffered, it, it, it was shocking. I mean, you hear about it, you know about it, but to read someone's firsthand account of it, it's it's brutal. Um, but in this book, he speaks about the difference between those who didn't survive and those who did. And he doesn't say in that, he doesn't say that those who did survive were just the ones who weren't treated as badly as everyone else. No, he says they were all treated equally horribly. He said there was the, the big difference was this. Those who didn't survive lost sight of the future. They had given up hope. But those who did survive kept their eyes fixed on the future. In fact, this is what he says. This is his quote. It is a peculiarity of man that he can only live by looking to the future. And this is his salvation in the most difficult moments of his existence, although he sometimes has to force his mind to the task. Saying the only thing across the park that got people through those concentration camps, was looking to the future, keeping their eyes fixed on the future. This is what James is getting at here this morning. This is what James is saying. This is what God is pleading with us this morning to keep our eyes fixed fixed on the future, to fight for it, even in the most difficult moments of our existence. Because if we can keep our eyes fixed on the future, it's going to transform us here and now. It's going to help us be more like Christ here and now. It's going to allow us and enable us to be people of patience who stand firm even in dry seasons. It's going to help us to be people who speak well about people, knowing that Jesus is going to return. If we can live with the end in mind, it's going to enable us to persevere, to stand firm in suffering. And if we live with the end in mind, it's going, to, it's going to transform us to be a people of integrity. But we have to fight for it. We have to fight to live with the end in mind, to live with Jesus on our mind, to live with his return on our mind. Because we live in a world that says this is all we've got. But if we can fight with the end in mind, If we can think about the future, it's going to transform our present situation, whatever we're in. And the future is this Jesus is going to return. Bank on it. It will happen. He's coming back. And when he does, it's going to be extraordinary. Everyone, everywhere, will know that the king is back. Let's let this truth transform our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you that there is a future hope that we have. Jesus, that you didn't stay dead, you rose again, and you promised to return, and we can know that one day you will. God, we, we ask that this morning you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on this return. We plead with you this morning, please keep our eyes on you. Help us to lift our eyes, to see that the King is coming back, and when he does, it will be a glorious day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.